0: Welcome to Drinking Bros, presented by GhostBed.com. Sit back, relax, and grab a fucking drink. Yeah, woo. welcome to Drinking Bros. Kids, it's a chilly, chilly Monday, D'Anthony. Uh, school's out. You gotta be careful talking about chilly, because Texans, uh,
1: they're kind of divided from the rest of the country. Sure. No beans on chili. No, no beans in chili. They say. Yeah,
0: either. yeah. No, no beans on chili, and then uh, chili is defined as anything under uh, forty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's thirty-two, mm-hmm. and they just canceled school. What better way than to snuggle up with your favorite podcast and potentially your favorite author? Yeah. Greg Hurtitz is here today. Hurwitz. Nope Nope, sure isn't. Uh, Sorry, Greg. So on our sheet today, when we walked in, it said her tits, and we asked, all right, who fucked this up today? who was the one that fucked no, up? They're
1: blaming they're blaming autocorrect. I don't I don't know. But I, I can't H U R T I T Z is not a word sure that I'm familiar with.
2: No, it's the man with a newborn. Yeah. Yeah,
1: so, yeah blame <laughs> your fucking kids.
2: <laughs> I mean, I'll happily put all the blame on my children. Fired,
0: gentlemen. Someone's gotta get fired. I know, exactly. See? Yeah. I mean, Greg, you're an author. Does it autocorrect into her tits ever? Because it sure doesn't on
2: my end. It doesn't. I think you guys are feeding it through your chest feeding uh, algorithm over there. (laughs) Chest feeding.
0: Uh, oh, God. the the tit GPT bots yeah. that we're using over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Come, gentlemen, It's supposed to be a respectable author interview. <laughs> I know,
0: I know, and you showed up to the most uh, disrespectful show on the planet. I feel like we've
1: been pretty clear over over the years about who we are. Here. I do too. Uh, we're not
0: hiding anything here. Yeah, uh, but in all sincerity, you are uh, you're one of our faves uh what would you reckon here top five in the world these days somebody like you i mean you're pumping out books left and right well thank you i'm glad i'm
2: one of your favorites things that take took off a lot with orphan axe man that series has been great Mm. i got the eighth one coming uh, I was a different kind of traction, so I don't know. I mean, look, I think that all top five slots are held by James Patterson simultaneously, so I'm not going to claim I can compete in the top five, but things have been good. We're in a lot of languages, and we're getting good reaction, and look, the series is a blast. It's a blast to
0: write. Yeah, and look, I'm glad you brought up James Patterson, because I was trying to get to the bottom of the mystery of James Patterson and how there's 30 James Patterson books That come out every single goddamn year. And finally, I I listened to enough podcasts that I was able to crack the code. So apparently, and maybe you can confirm this for me. Apparently, he comes up with the ideas now, gives them to his son, and then they have like a team of 12 writers on staff that pump those out.
2: I don't don't know about his son. I do know that he works with a lot of other writers so that some of the stuff he's writing in concept or or Mm. in concert with somebody else. He'll come up with the idea. He's got a big, long table, and there's a bunch of manuscripts on it, and he's always in different stages of it. So he does write <coughs> some of his own on the Alex Cross front, but then another way to think of him is, like, a massive showrunner, mm-hmm. right, who's, like, running and generating the story from and kind of overseeing creative content for a bunch of stuff. And you know what? He does a lot of stuff for the community, too, a lot of funds for education if there's, like, a bookstore that gets flooded. Like, he's a he's a solid – uh member of the community overall. Um
0: he's also a marketing
2: genius. Sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and, and the reason I bring it up is to get to that level where you're you're pumping out so many books. I mean, uh I'm a, I'm a writer myself. Uh, New York Times bestselling selling authors. Well, no big deal. But with that, um I can't imagine pumping out the number of books you're pumping out right now. Are you imploring any of the same tactics? Uh, no, I mostly just
2: go with cocaine and Red Bull. There you and go. So I've,
0: been,
2: I've been on the scene. The cocaine fan I'm, I'm writing a book a year now. I, there's There was two years that I wrote a young adult book also. I did two a year.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It's, that's a not wildly um, unpredictable schedule for a commercial fiction writer. I just do other stuff too. Like I work in comics. I do screenplays. I do TV um, but no, I have one orphan X book out a year. And that's the same as, you know, Baldacci, Lee Childs, Robert Krace, Michael Conley. Like, that's a pretty normal schedule. Actually, Mike Mike and David do more even, I think, at this point.
1: Yeah, but um, they they work with teams, too. And, you know, Vince Flynn was uh, one of my favorite authors back in the day before um, he passed. And he kind of started that process with Kyle Mills. I don't know if he did it. I never really looked into it if he did it because he knew he was sick. Or if he did it because he just wanted to broaden the ability to write more novels right because people are such big fans of the mitch
2: rap series yeah it's a killer series he was a good guy it's such a shame mm. what happened to him so wait so you came in like who are your early thriller like what are your first thriller loves
0: like what did you start with you two it's always um, tom clamps I, mine's tom clancy. clancy Baldacci,
1: and flynn for me for sure when i was deployed i read everything those three guys wrote. And then yeah. uh, sometime the first orphan book was what 2016. I think that's when I picked that up. Oh, cool! Yeah,
2: cool. Yeah, we have a. It's a. The thing that's really cool with thrillers is there's a really wide range of who reads it. Like you know, I get a lot. There's a lot of guys who are military, who are cops, who are. It's just it's a super rangy form of people who read it. It's um it's across the whole spectrum. Um, it's pretty cool. Yeah, but you know, I got to make sure I'm getting my gun stuff right. That's for sure. It's like you make a mistake. <laughs> oh yeah, doing do a thriller. Like if you make a gun mistake or you kill a cat, it's like your yeah. career's over.
1: Yeah. Um. Yeah. I think it's uh, Mark Greeny's another one. The guy that writes Gray Man. That, Gray. That's a that's a good series as well. Anyways. Uh. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. The best, the best writing, no matter what the genre is, is uh, it's obviously captured by that genre, but it's also. Usually these books are like a treatise on the human condition in, in some way or another, right? Um,
2: that's right. I mean, for me especially, you know, with Orphan X, I'm really trying to write about, I mean, look, I make clear that the the beginning trope is he's a kid who's pulled out of a foster home at the age of 12, right? And he's trained to be an off-the-books assassin. So, you know, that's that's a not wildly innovative starting premise, right? Like Morel's played in that water, La Femme Nikita, other stuff. And so for a long time, I had that premise. I knew I wanted to be an orphan program. I knew I wanted to be black ops, but I was really waiting. And one of the big breakthroughs I had was I thought, well, what if his father, fig- what if his handler, former CIA handler and father figure who trains him actually loves him? So that this program, it's not just like the worst thing that's ever been that's ever happened to him because he's trained to be disposable an expendable weapon but what if it's also the best thing that ever happened to him that he's given like a proper education. I, I say he's like a blue collar Renaissance man. Right. And so what if he's really trained up by somebody who wants the best for him? And one of the things Jack tells him in the, in, in all the books, I mentioned it, he says, the hard part's not making you a killer. The hard part's going to be keeping you human. human. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the collision course for me. That's all the, all the tension and friction. And so <clears throat> there's a lot to that. And he's growing and evolving a lot across the books. Um, in ways that are really cool and interesting like one of the other things i say because look he was raised like with mixed martial arts fighting experts with you know ops interrogation techniques he did he was drown proof like he was his whole upbringing was being trained by a series of people one-on-one who were great at something that that he had to learn about um but one of the things i say is he never learned how to speak the strange language of intimacy right so he's he can garrote a child molester in a, you know, Moscow Banya without breaking a sweat, but if he has to make small talk at the mail slots, he's like undone. Like when he's in the real world, that's really where the tension comes in for him.
1: Right, yeah. And I think that's uh, you know, in a in a in a much less pronounced way, that is very indicative of what it's like to come back from war, frankly, right? Because you get uh you get trained to behave a certain way, right? Uh, uh, and expect certain things, and you come back, and everybody's talking in, in platitudes. Frankly, and it's it's difficult to transition. to. I, I read a lot of that through the character development of uh, of Smoke through the years. I've read uh, all the books. As a matter of fact, when um, <clears throat> when your guys reached out to us, I went ahead and re- reread all of them, uh, wow. just because it, it's it is it has become my favorite series now. Um, and it's because of all the things you say, like the character development, the addition of the Joey character, um, the way he's like kind of handled day-to-day life and stuff like that. It, it resonates with a lot of us.
2: Thank you. That means a lot to me, man. I mean, the best praises from the real deal. Um, you know, I got a lot of friends who are military. Uh, I got a lot of friends in the teams community and you know, just spending a lot of time around them and listening and then also seeing how other people interact with them, right? Like what all that bullshit is that they have to kind of deal with and, You know, if you're a Navy SEAL out at any bar, it's like someone's going to ask you how many people you've killed within five minutes and like just sort of observing all of that. Right. And also figuring out that the people who I most want to talk to, it's never like the public information officers. Right. It's everybody who who is not eager to talk and you really have to establish trust. Right. You have to really establish a real relationship and then have a lot of trust back and forth. Um, you know, one of my buddies is a, you know, amazing demolition breacher, you know, was like a plank holder in team six. And, um, you know, he and I, it was a long time before he would sit down with me and go, cool, you want to design a bomb? Let's design a bomb. And then when we're done, we're going to go back and change two things. Right. Because we're not making the anarchist cookbook. Right. So it's it, and it's not just the specifics. It's also the mindset of what mm-hmm. people are willing to kind of share. And so, you know, for me, it's. um I didn't serve right it's, an, it's it's something that I have to kind of approach with um, respect and understanding but also and this is a weird thing to say for me being non-military, but I can't also be overly respectful where I'm reverential right because then that becomes really annoying right yeah. that, be, that turns into like the thank you for your service loop
1: yeah we're not, where, we're not thrilled with that either
2: yeah and so it's a it's a it's a tricky balance so i'm 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 flattered that you think that it's that i'm getting a lot of that right
1: yeah it's really good i mean it's uh you know you're i i I wouldn't say you're behind the eight ball necessarily but somebody like jack carr definitely has a leg up on you because he was in Team Three for fucking twenty years. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the he's writing about his own experiences or his friends or conversations he had with actual operators. So it, it must have been. How, how did you get into that in the first place? Were there did you just have friends who were operators that you went to, or did you go meet new people? How did that all work?
2: Well, I so it's weird. So Orphan Acts, you know, it's the start of this whole big, you know, newest and biggest phase of my career. It was also my sixteenth book, you know, and so I really. um spent a lot of time doing research. Like I've, you know, I shadowed in a ER for uh, a couple of weeks for one book. I went in undercover in a mind control cult. I've been up in stunt airplanes. Um, you know, I, I also did a couple projects around Navy SEALs. I, I did a project with Dick Marcinko, you know, adapting. I was like the 97th person to adapt rogue warrior for Bruckheimer it was my first job that got me in the guild. So, you know, going on demolition ranges and blowing up cars with guys. And I try and shoot every weapon that Evan gets on um you know benelli combat shotguns Mm -hmm. custom 1911s um and um you know i've done some mixed martial arts training like i try and do all the stuff so that at least i can feel like i'm approaching it not from one step remove which is for me as a civilian i don't want to describe something that i've read in 100 books or seen in 100 movies right what you don't want is like you know someone gets choked and then you write and then they saw then everything went black, like Mm -hmm. everything we're trying to avoid cliches. So if I'm working with someone who's a real fighter and they're putting me in a chokehold and I can experience that the same way that you experience that like, you know, face pain feels different as a different quality to it than body pain, right? Getting choked out, there's a kind of claustrophobia to that. And if I can kind of put myself in even as a dilettante, right? I'm never gonna be the best person who's gonna be on, on that range or on that mat. I can at least write about it from from the inside out and what i'm really trying to do with characters is you want to pull their their mask on over your face and just see the world through their eye holes like what are they clocking what are they doing um how do they see things how do they perceive things Mm -hmm. and look that started with me my dad's a doctor and my third novel i was still a kid you know i started pretty young and had some good luck um was a is a medical thriller but i just remember like i'd be out at dinner with my dad and if there was a waiter of a certain age with a limp my dad would go oh that's probably polio like he would see the world as a physician right um and it's very purely who he who he is and so that's the aim that you want with everything whether i'm talking to a professor or a porn star or a breacher or a sniper you want to really see how they're seeing the world and also not approach it by making them play wikipedia you want to do enough research that you're respecting their time mm-hmm. and getting into a real conversation with them you know where they'll have a point of view and an opinion and slaying and insight in different ways
1: yeah and it's uh you know again i guess uh that's what that's probably what's made you so successful and and particularly in this style of book right because details matter it's one of the uh how you do anything is how you do everything right it's part of the book it's uh, yeah, and, that's that stuff really matters.
2: Yeah, well, and you can see also where, you know, and I, I'm a lot of people with have different backgrounds where you're really bent on perfectionism. And there's a place where that loop the how you do anything's how you do everything can get stuck in a loop that mm-hmm. can also then tilt into OCD a bit, which is something that Evan deals with, right? Because you can also get frozen, you can get stuck on that piece. Um, and so it's also part of how he, given all of his skills, navigates the world. Because it's like you don't get to be exceptional at something without paying a cost, right? Like any exceptional focus means something else is blurry or out of focus in some other part of your self or your life or your relationships. And so it's this constant navigation with him of trying to figure out how to live, how to protect people in the real world so that they can have the kind of life that he can never have, right? He's kind of got to be the wolf who hunts other wolves who are terrorizing people now, because he's essentially become a pro bono assassin to help people in desperate need, who've got no other options. Um,
1: He's a solo a team guy, basically. I mean, that's, (laughs) that's, that's sort of what it is. But it's a lot, it's a lot more uh, grimy, I guess, it's like the, this, even the show, the A team, the movie that came out, or the idea, generally speaking, it didn't really get into like, the the real fucked up situations that regular human beings find themselves in through no fault of their own quite a bit right
2: yeah and look it took a certain amount i mean i started writing these books i was on the cusp of 40 and 40 was weird and rough for me like in a way that was different than other birthdays have been and i think part of what was happening for me is i was looking at you know a lot of things that had been uh successful in the lanes of life I was navigating but you get to that age and you wonder well what are the stuff that I've used and relied on as like survival mechanisms that have also driven me forward like which of this shit doesn't serve me anymore like which of these old rules do I have to break up to try and figure out what's new and weirdly that's kind of right where I started with Evan like he's got his 10 Assassin's Commandments I mean I wasn't thinking about this consciously because if you think about it consciously then you're kind of filling in the blanks in the writing, right? Mm. And it turns into a self-help book. I'm only thinking of it in terms of plot and what's the most thrilling, suspenseful novel. But in hindsight, which is so much clearer, it was like, you know, he's arrived at this thing that he was this assassin in the orphan program. He left the orphan program because his moral compass, you know, that collision course Jack put him on between being human and being an assassin. And he only wants to commit missions that are aligned now with his own moral compass. Um, but part of that means you gotta bust up a lot of your worldview and you gotta figure out what you gotta kill off in yourself to let other parts grow. And I think it's it's weird because that's something that a lot of us are going through at that midpoint of life. And in this context, it was just sort of writ large in a thriller setting. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't afraid to make him do things that are unlikable. I'm not afraid to have him be an asshole sometimes. I'm not afraid to have him make mistakes and then feel regret or shame over the mistakes or his inability to handle things properly. Um, and that's also a difference, you know, when I started, I thought I wanted to, I was kind of writing heroes and villains and it's like the further I get on in life, it's like I want to write antagonists and protagonists, Mm. right? And the more flawed my, my protagonist is, and the more compelling my antagonist is, then the, then for me, the more compelling that kind of dances, that's the plot in the story and the more questions that are raised.
1: Yeah. Um, but it's messier. Yeah. It's, it's messier, but it's a lot more, uh, it's a lot easier to identify with as a regular human being like it, it's just not the case that there's there are people who are perfect that are heroes and people who even bad people have redeeming qualities sometimes i don't want to go all kanye yeah it's fine it.
0: look chuck norris is perfect uh, uh, yeah. and then back to the a team that was pretty spot on i feel uh, especially mr t's character yeah yeah so like uh, face and murdhaw like they were that was pretty well, spot on
1: rampage jackson playing him in the movie was really good yeah uh, they should was have it? they should have done more. Yeah, he was good. Mr. Sh- t was the best. They should well, yeah, you but you can't replicate Mr. T. Um he's still alive. Speaking of t- film and television. I know but yeah. he's like 80 years old.
0: When are we getting a goddamn well, movie
1: with all the with all the success that ter- the Terminalists had on Amazon now. I feel like it it's a look, it takes a lot to get something like that done and studios these days are very risk averse. Uh if it, if you're if whatever you're doing doesn't appeal to the uh particularly to the asian markets where there's 80 percent of our revenues coming from now then they're not super into it but amazon's been taking risk on some of this stuff and the Terminalist killed it yep. and they've signed on for season two do you see now because i know you've had some development deals i think in the past but do you see now a real path because i think the evan smoke character played out over five to seven seasons on television but just because of the arc the way you wrote it the where he starts and where he is now even is such a good story to to let play out on screen like that. Do you think anything like that's in the future?
2: You know, I do. You mentioned I've had a, a couple different deals. I adapted it once for film. Um, that was actually an amazing experience. And then I just lost my movie star to another project. That happens sometimes. And the timing just just kind of ran into each other. And then I was really playing a lot on the TV side with all sorts of different teams. The pandemic hit. I think Hollywood was a bit upside down with what they wanted to um green light and not like, I just felt like we, I could never quite figure it. And so I'm in a different place now. I mean, when I first adapted it, the first adaptation I did was, was, you know, we we sent it to one actor a year before the book came out and I was adapting it for him. And I was writing the second book. And then with the pilot, you know, it was similar. I had book three out and I was working on book four, let's say, but at this point I think the universes, the parallel universes are so divergent that I can't be like, out on tour for book eight editing book nine and writing rough drafting book 10 Mm -hmm. and reset all the way with book one as a showrunner and creator for the franchise and keep track of all of it all the way through and so i've had a pretty big shift you know that was also you know a bit humbling for me to realize like I can't carry the football through both of these universes and be in charge of both.
1: Well, do you think that's <laughs> uh that's a problem that George R. Martin ran into, right? Trying to finish off game of Thrones and then still being working on the, yeah. the dailies and shit there. It just became well, he, impossible yeah, for him.
2: Well, and he had two brilliant guys running that show, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Benny And is it Weiss? I think. Yeah. Um, yeah yep. Yeah. I and mean, Benny
1: off guys- is like a legend at oh, doing yeah. this kind of stuff
2: amazing right amazing novelist amazing Mm -hmm. screenwriter but in some ways i think you know for me i was originally trying to be benioff and weiss and george r R. martin while also writing the novels and that's the thing for me where i'm like i just can't do it and i think in some ways the template would be more like what jack's done or what lee child's done with the new reacher Mm -hmm. tv series which is i want to have a relationship and look we get requests incoming inquiries all the time from actors and directors and if I know somebody knows the DNA and really gets it at that point what I think I'd want to do is give the football to them and say look I'm a database plug into me right as needed for what scenes are where for characters pass on it executive producer but like somebody else has to go and make it their own I mm-hmm. think in order to have that run to carry it through multiple seasons let's say Yeah
1: I'm not I'm not sure the periphery matters that much it's it's really about evan and how he develops as a character over the you know however many
2: because look i've adapted enough i've written enough screenplays myself and adapted enough to know you know it's a big change man i mean going even to adapt for a movie you're going from 400 pages of final product to 110 page recipe with lots of white on the page Mm -hmm. that's an invitation to collaborate i mean things have to move and if you think about it we know this because the most slavish translations of books or adaptations of books aren't the good ones what are the greatest ones apocalypse now jaws you know godfather about schmidt i mean like there's some movie about schmidt you could read the lewis begley novel and then see the alexander payne movie that afternoon and not even know they're related Mm. clockwork orange is another one Mm. like you want it to go out and fulfill the other form in a way that's full not just be a sort of direct translation from novel to script. To yeah, screen. yeah, yeah. So the partner is important, right? Because some people don't get it. Like I've had interviews where people don't, you know, or, or or engagements where people are talking about the character, and they don't really get it. They're trying to kind of make him Jason Bourne or make him Jack Reacher. And it's not who he is. Um, but if somebody gets that the right way, then then look, off we go, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. that's a it's a great point. I mean, one of the focal points for Jack in the terminal list was The brutality, right? He really wanted to emphasize the brutality and the combination of whomever the screenwriter was and the director and Pratt's performance, just showing like these principles, like uh, violence of action that we believe in in the military because they work, right? I I was in the infantry. That stuff is it can be difficult to show on screen without making the character unlikable, right? Like that scene in the terminal list where. Uh, Pratt detonates the EFP and then fucking, you know, even at the end runs up the stairs and fucking puts uh, bullets in Jai Courtney's face, very brutal, but that's exactly how you would execute that kind of thing. Right. And it came through very authentic and that's going to be, that's going to be tough on screen for a character. Like, cause it, I don't want to talk too much shit, but that, uh, the, the gray man movie that came out with, uh, was it Ryan Gosling yeah. was in that yep. wasn't a huge fan of that. It was super campy and stuff. And it just wasn't the voice that i remember from the books but the new and look the tom cruise version of uh uh, of reacher was i thought those movies were great but it wasn't the character from the from the book right like the the tv series on amazon now that's jack reacher that's the character big hulking dude smart ass that that was totally him right so you know what is it that you would be looking for i guess in that partner specifically aside from just taking the reins and making it their own what what parts of smoke or the story in general, do you really want to head up? Like if, for, for what does success look like to you? If it hits these points, Kevin Hart. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a good question to, That's the way to approach it. Right. I mean, that's really the way to think about it. Not just like who's famous and gets a greenlit. I mean, for me, like the actor I originally sent it to was Bradley Cooper, because I felt like the range between silver linings playbook For the human side and american sniper for Mm -hmm. the badass side you need somebody who can toggle those two now that's pretty rare i mean one of the things that somebody told me i want to say it was a director friend of mine said that one of the things you can't ever uh direct somebody into is the trait of warmth right like there's Uh, yeah yeah yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: right like you know joaquin phoenix brilliant actor he's not going to play he doesn't have a sort of like Well, look, who knows? He's such a genius. He could probably do anything. He hasn't chosen roles for that, but it's gonna be really tricky because it's gotta be somebody, you know, Evan smoke is one of the lines I say about him is average size, average build, not too good looking, right? Like he's dead average. He's not the most charming guy like bond. He's not the biggest guy like reacher. He's not the best shot like swagger. He's Ulysses. He's the man of many wiles. He needs to bring the totality of who he is to a mission to accomplish it. But there's got to be this vulnerability that can get conveyed very subtly, even though he's pretty shut down and locked down. But you have to see these glimmers of it. And a lot of people who are super badass who can play that role don't necessarily have that way of giving really subtle uh, emotional entry to the viewer. And so that's something I think that's pretty important is to find somebody who knows how to do that.
0: John Bernthal. Hmm.
2: He's great, man. I mean, look, Punisher, Punisher was my hero growing up. Um, When I wrote in comics, that was one of the first jobs that I had. Marvel called me and said, who do you want out of the vaults? You know, and I wrote the first Punisher arc after um, Garth Ennis left the title. I don't know if y'all are like comic book nerds, but I I had a stint in comics. I wrote Batman, Wolverine, but Punisher was like the end all be all to me. Um, And I had a really interesting experience um, doing Punisher at one point because I had a plot point where uh, the Punisher accidentally kills somebody as collateral damage. Mm -hmm. They were really clear to say that can never happen, right? Like the minute the Punisher does that, he'd have to punish himself and kill himself and the whole story is over. And so it was this very interesting thing of like having a lot of respect for the parameters because these characters are public trust. You know, when I'm writing Batman... He's been around since before i was born and Mm -hmm. batman's gonna be right after i'm dead right like i want to bring myself to that but i also have to be very respectful that batman is a character in the public trust but with orphan x you know i do get to break whatever rules that i want if it's organically expanding his story Mm -hmm. right like it's there's a lot of freedom in that and that doesn't mean that you take it it doesn't mean that you explode the whole form Right. But it does mean that I can move that along as I want. And someone like Berthal who played Punisher, it's like, yeah, he can open up into a lot more. I mean, we saw a different side of him in Walking Dead, right? Also, yeah. he's he's got a lot of different colors to him. And it's like, that's what I'm going to want with a bit more movement from it. Um, but yeah, I was I was all about the Punisher.
0: Okay. Yeah, because uh, it's interesting with like B Coops, for example. You know, Bradley Cooper would do it. I think he would do it in a film version, but not a television version, just because he doesn't want to sacrifice that much of his time. Yeah, he's busy. We, Dan and I were surprised that uh, Pratt even signed on for a TV series. With you know all the big budget movies he does, but there's going to be a year gap because of that, right? Correct. Yeah. I mean, in
1: a perfect world, he would have been able to sign right back on. They could have started season two uh, last summer, sometime or last fall. Right. But it's gonna there's going to be a delay now, but yeah. it is what it is.
0: Yeah. So it's 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 a tough one. And like you know, me coming from the Hollywood world, I understand what you're talking about. Where you you know adapt a, a film for someone, it sits there forever. It kind of languishes if the the, the person doesn't jump on it. They shelve it. Uh, We've had new success in television over the last few years, especially with streaming. And they're more willing to take a risk on a lesser-known actor. So you don't really necessarily have to get a Bradley Cooper to get a TV show greenlit. You can just get a great actor these days, which would help. And, And I think, again, to Dan's point, with the entire series, I now think this deserves to be a series and not just one-off films where you're doing sequel, I don't sequel, think you can sequel, tell sequel. this man's story. I do
1: either. And even like two or three films. Yep. To be I honest, I, I agree. It's, it's just not going to happen. You know,
2: I'm thinking, the same, I'm thinking the same way as you guys are. You know, and it's interesting too, because I've also been thinking more, you know, one of the things that happens settling into a series more and seeing it find success is there's also more, a lot more confidence too in just waiting now. Like I've already sold it a couple times. I've got the rights back a couple times. I've had other movies made, you know, and so part of it is, is, you know, I'm starting to think like when you, any act, any movie star that you have bring some kind of baggage, right? They bring a ton of advantage, but they also bring some negatives because there's a lot of preconceived notions with them and orphan X Evan smoke by definition is somebody who blends in anywhere. He's not noticeable. Right. And so I think it would be amazing to find somebody who is an unlikely person to cast, kind of how Andrew Lincoln was in Walking Dead, where it was sort of like, wait, he's the guy with the sign from Love Actually? Like, what's happening here? Right. Like, it's right. somebody where it's new, where they can really become and embody the character. It might be kind of cool. I mean, and that's not to say I'm not open to incoming calls, which we're getting from some, you know, how household name actors, but I also want to make sure that we keep the choke pretty wide on the shotgun for looking at options and for the kind of outreach.
1: Yeah, for sure. And the, the Jack character is going to be a big deal too. Actually the Joey character might be the most difficult to cast, but uh, right. Jack- to
2: have her not, not get like annoyingly mouthy. Like there's a whole balance she's got to have to be her kind of full self.
1: Yeah. Because the re- the real emotion between her character and Evan's character happens between the lines. Right. Uh, and and you kind of have to read into that it could be uh, having the uh the ability to write expositional dialogue is nice and you can't necessarily do that on on camera so that's going to be a challenge but yeah i don't this is this story is perfect for this stuff now speaking of the dialogue uh you've had the same this is something he and i talk about with authors a lot you've had the same uh voice actor throughout the entire series yeah. Right, which is I think important. Very, very in, important. In your head, that becomes the person. You know what I mean. So, yeah. How I did mean, you choose? Guys- his name's Scott Brick, right?
2: How did you choose? Yeah, how him? did
0: you choose him, or did the how publisher did choose. choose it for you? No, this is a good story.
2: So, do you guys listen or read, or do you do both?
0: I, I listen. I read, actually. Um, yeah. Got
2: it. So, so I'm a reader more than a listener. Same, right? So, I'm a little bit newer to that side, um, but scott's amazing i got scott off a book i wrote called the crime writer and he just crushed it it was i think it's my eighth novel i mean he was amazing and so i had a bunch of books with scott and then when i wrote the um i stayed with my same publishers in the us and the uk but when i wrote the first orphan x i wrote it on spec i had a bunch of stuff going on and for some reason i didn't just tilt into the next deal though i could have i wanted to make sure everybody signed on new and knew what they were doing, not just cause it was like book number two in a, in a three book deal or something. And so when I wrote it, I wrote that one, eight, five. It's so it's one eight five five two nowhere. Uh, the numeral two is the number that people call. It's an encrypted line when they're in desperate need and Evan smoke answers the phone. And then he'll like deploy to investigate on your behalf. If you're being terrorized by somebody and just, you know, uncork mayhem, um, in his protection of you but when i got there in the manuscript i called scott who i'd done books with and i was like hey man i just bought this 1855 to nowhere number can you record an answer for it or or, so can i have you pick up the phone as this character he's going to be called orphan x his name's going to be evan smoke you'll get it later but will you just record a message for me if i come over and he was like yeah he lives in la He's a buddy, I drove over to his house, he recorded it for me. So when we took the manuscript out to give to editors, when they got to that number, they could call it and then Orphan X picks up the phone and that's still the case now. And so when I sold it, I put in my contract, I believe it's the first time that anyone's done this for a audio reader. I said, Scott Brick needs to be in all my contracts as the voice of, Evan, as of Orphan X. And even when we switched deals and I moved between audiobook publishers I said that in the New Deal. I said, I'm not going to switch unless we hold Scott to it. He's done a remarkable job with it. And there's a kind of consistency that's just great. Look, it's hard, man. As you know, you've heard different ones. If someone gets too over it gets really theatrical and annoying, right? And if somebody's flat and monotone, you get bored. It's a very delicate balance of how you can read something and... You know, I, I always say about Scott, I feel like he's the conductor and all the different sections of the orchestra at the same time. Like, there's a lot you're asking a voice performer to do.
0: Greg, you've been on a bunch of podcasts. You know the rules. We got some sponsors that put this show on the air. First and foremost, ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. It's chilly out there for a lot of us. I don't know about you. But I could have stayed in my ghost bed the entire day today and pulled the sheets up over my face and never come out. God damn it, do I love that thing. Hung over from the championship games. I could have slept forever this morning, but we got shows to do, damn it. We got sponsors who pay for us to be on the air. GhostBed is our title sponsor. Please go out and support us. If you need a mattress out there, make sure it's from GhostBed at GhostBed.com forward slash Drinking Bros. 30% off a mattress and two free luxury pillows right now. And I can promise you the pillows are just as good as the goddamn mattress. I love the sheets. I don't have the weighted blanket, but I can tell you if you guys have it out there, Uh, You would have pulled it up over your faces today, too, especially down here in Texas. I just got to think, what's sleeting outside? Woo! That's fun. You know what else is fun? The 40% off bundle package. That adjustable base is one of the greatest inventions in life I don't know if they're the first to do it or they just made it better than everybody else's, but I love it. I've had it for three-plus years now. You get 40% off when you get a mattress combined with the adjustable base. comes with a super sleek remote control, flashlights, USB ports. All the bells and whistles are on this thing, and it's also offered in a split king. and Then you get two remotes with that, so if your partner wants to go to sleep uh, before you, or stay up later than you, you control your side of the bed. And at checkouts, at the bottom of the screen, you're going to see a 60-month pay-as-you-go program. No interest there as long as you have decent credits. Check that box, and all the deals that I mentioned are applicable with that. And you can walk out of there with a brand-new bedroom set for about 25 bucks a month, Head on over to GhostBed.com forward slash Drinking Bros. You can put as much stuff in the cart as you want, by the way. Just pop in the promo code Drinking Bros at checkout. You're good to go. They'll give you 30% off all of it. Next up, we got Babble. One of the most exciting things about a new year is you have no idea What adventures are in store for you? From new travel experiences to new jobs or picking up new skill sets, there's no better way to prepare for 2023 by learning a new language with Babbel. Babbel is the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions. Thanks to Babbel's addictively fun and easy bite-sized language lessons, you can feel confidence no matter where your new year takes you. I know D'Anthony's doing Spanish. Uh, I think Dakota's doing, uh, I might be doing German right now. Uh, with Babbel, you only need 10 minutes to complete a lesson so you can start having a real-life conversation in a new language in as little as three weeks. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 18, no, I'm sorry, 150 language experts. My God, that's a lot. I was expecting it. 18, 150, it says. Holy shit. And voiced by real native speakers, not computers, uh, their teaching methods have been scientifically proven to be effective. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages. There it is. That's why I got tripped up. Plus, Babbel's speech-wrecking technology... Uh, helps you improve your pronunciation and accents. There's so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now. Get up to fifty-five percent off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash drinking bros. That is babbel.com slash drinking bros for up to fifty-five percent off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. Last up, we got hard Let's go. Super Bowls right around the corner. You know you can order some 8% seltzers right to your house. No carbs, no sugars, no glutens. You can give a shit about that and get rocks for the Super Bowl. New flavors are out. New pina colada, new watermelon is out. And if you live in Tennessee or Florida, we are in over 200 stores there. All you have to do is go to the store locator, type in your city or zip code in Tennessee or Florida, and it'll take you directly to the closest store Uh, powered by Google Maps, super fucking easy. You can do it while you're driving if you want or give it to whoever's riding shotgun. Go pick up a 12-pack today at your favorite store in the Southeast. Uh, We're in the biggest booze retailer you can be in. It is totally awesome. So go and get a 12-pack today. Stock up for your Super Bowl parties uh, and go to hardafseltzer.com. Are you in the room directing him by the way? No, he reads the book, he reads the manuscript.
2: He'll call me a lot of times with questions about terms, uh, slaying, you know, certain pronunciations. So we have a very close relationship back and forth. There's some stuff he'll call me to figure out how he should handle. Um, but no, I'm not in the room doing it. It's a lot of hours you know, and yeah. I, I just trust him. Absolutely. So that's one of those things, man. We were talking about this with an actor, right? With Scott, I knew he knew the, D- I know he knows the DNA of this character and all the characters. So I got to give that to him to make that his performance, right? Sure.
0: Uh, yeah. Uh, any, any thought of him playing it in real life, um, because people are so used to the audiobook, What does he look like in real life?
2: Uh, I don't know. He's, he looks like a dude, man. I mean, he could, he's, I think he's a little old, though. Don't tell him I said that. I mean, (laughs) Orphan X is still like on the younger part of his 40s. Um, But um, Scott's a cool cat.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Just thought I'd ask. Uh, I want to switch on over to some other projects you've done here. Um, How did you get to do the TV adaptation of Black Flags, The Rise of Isis?
2: Oh, man. So that came in through Bradley Cooper and Todd Phillips when we were working on Orphan X. I'm still hoping we can get that through. I mean, it's about the rise of Zarkalway. Yep. Um, for people who don't know, the book won the Pulitzer. Um we had not I mean, it's praised
0: process. widely across the board as like one of the greatest books, you know, ever. Um I'm just curious how that came to you to to adapt it. Came to me through them. It came okay. to me
2: through Bradley and Todd. They were producing it one time. Oh, and so shit, that relationship. Yeah. Uh, And I'm still really hopeful that we can get that role. I was actually just in Jordan a few weeks ago, um, you know, where where a lot of it takes place, um, you know, because King Abdullah II plays a role in it. It's an incredible (laughs) story. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot about it in terms of how great it would be to show um, characters from the... Muslim world, right, in some of the efforts that they've made to hold stability and fight extremism, right, to get different parts of that conversation. You guys are going to be much more familiar with it with your backgrounds than a lot of people. But it's like, that world is so not a monolith, right? And a lot of us don't have it differentiated. And there's so many interesting characters, whether it's Abdullah, whether it's the Mukhabarat, whether it's the fights that they're having and the negotiations that they're making um against extremism and the insights they have around it so it was it was a captivating world to dive into
0: yeah i bet man i read it god i want to say 5 or 6 years ago and uh and it was incredible uh and i also wondered how you you could get this made um because that's a real tricky sell to a studio like man uh you you know what i'm saying like i i just can't I'm see any, you. anybody in Did today's we, world making
2: that we had the most amazing package. I mean, so we have you have Todd Phillips and Bradley Cooper producing both of whom aside from being a great actor and director are just creative geniuses. I mean, you know, they're, they're just they're, they're so bright, they were so engaged with the subject matter. Joby work, you know, wrote the book that won a Pulitzer, I think he's one of two people in history to win a Pulitzer for both nonfiction, and for journalism. So he's like a database You know, and then we had briefly when we sold this package to HBO, Tim Van Patten directing, right? Who directed the pilot for Game of Thrones? Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just like a slam dunk a hundred ways. And, um, and the thing is, is we got down the line on it, and it's a big, expensive property. I mean, it's not a cheap budget. We were looking at, I don't know, it was a lot of money per episode, and I think it got to a point that people were like, "Are we going to pay this much money to have a you know six or eight series limited?" limited series about ISIS. Like, is that what people wanna see? Or do people want it, something that's cheery or uplifting or blue sky? And so I just, I still think it's immensely important. And, you know, it's something for me that I feel I'm, I'm hoping and praying it's gonna come around at some point because um, it's it's rare you get subject matter. That's just that rich and that relevant. Um, but as you guys know, you don't always get to choose. You know, when if I'm not writing the check for $80 million, I don't get to choose what the green light is. It's a big price of entry. And so, you know, um, you got to line it all up. You got to mm. you got to catch lightning in an eyedropper.
0: Yeah, because, you know, studios right now are looking for IPs. Scripted is, uh, if it's expensive, they're cutting those budgets right now. It's a strange time uh, as far as all the streaming uh, is concerned right now. And what sucks is your work is so great. But it's expensive to make, budget-wise. Um, so you've, you've got to really have, like you said, lightning and an eyedropper. You've got to have all the elements there come together. Uh, I'm surprised with that lineup behind it that's, uh, that that didn't get pushed through Well,
1: Phillips got – Cooper got pulled off into some other project, right, in 2016, I think. And then Phillips was doing – he was in development on the Joker. Joker, yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, for the Orphan X thing, I mean, part of what happened is as the option came up, you know, Bradley was starting to move on to A Star is Born, right? Which Mm. he's writing, producing, directing and learning to
1: sing. Yep. (laughs) I mean, that was pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah, he was great.
2: The The thing with him is like he's yeah it's it's really cool when you when you know a lot we have a view sometimes of movie stars and i mean you guys have ta- i'm sure you've talked to plenty of people too that you know it but a lot of people don't always know that there's such a lane like uh, the the book itself uh, you know cooper's the one who found that book and he could talk up and down and side to side about it i mean like there was such a a drive of like governing intellectual curiosity from him for it You know, so it's like, it's hard to hold, you know, you need all these pieces to line up at the right time. Obviously, he went off to Star is Born, and that was a full-blown artistic endeavor, right? So that's where that is. So then all of a sudden, for me, it's like, okay, well, who's another actor who I can slot who's going to match the script? And like, all of a sudden, you're you're playing Tetris a little bit, trying to get all the pieces to line up again.
0: Yeah, and and with that team in particular, I know they used uh, Lady Gaga for The Joker 2, which they're shooting right now. Uh, she's uh, playing Harley Quinn in that one. So I'm sure that's going to take a lot of work in post. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you know, yeah, yeah same story Hollywood wise. Uh, we'll, we'll move on though. Um, I, I think it's interesting that uh, uh, you went to Harvard, uh, but you might be the only person who had a professor that was Jordan Peterson.
2: Well, not the only person, but yeah, he was my thesis. The only invited. person
0: that we've ever talked to for sure oh, okay. on this show. Yeah. Cause we've done yeah. 1600 episodes and like, we don't get a lot. We get a lot of dummies on this show. Let's face it. Okay. <laughs> not, we don't get a lot of Harvard guys rolling through here. What was he like as a professor before all of this shit exploded for him?
2: He was great, man. He was great. I mean, I took him for personality psych. I immediately took him for a seminar on young Right then, my thesis was Jungian and Freudian analysis of Shakespeare. Then he was my thesis advisor, so I mean, I was just trying to get as much time um, in with him as possible. You know, when I wrote the first Orphan X, there's quotes in it from Jordan Peterson. It was really funny because then he'd moved to U Toronto, and I was like, "Look, I'm going to quote my <laughs> this this you know Canadian psychology professor. This should be uncontroversial." <laughs> um, you know, because we'd been in touch a bunch, and you know, I, I helped him um, a bit uh, on twelve Twelve Rules for Life, and we just we we've been in touch a lot, and then things kind of exploded into what they exploded into. But we have a pretty enduring friendship that for a lot for decades before that happened, and that was good. That's a good baseline to have, mm-hmm. especially because we don't agree on everything politically. And when people come to me and want me to like answer for every last thing he said, I always think like, God, how how limited must your imagination be to think that you would have Jordan Peterson as one of your closest friends and want to agree with him on everything? Like, come on. Yeah. Not
0: only that, but like people change over the years. So, you know, that was a long time ago. You were in the nineties, uh, when, when he was your professor there. So, People change. The world changes. You have different uh, things that make your life important and kids and all that other stuff. So, yeah, views will change because we get that a lot, too, of, like, why did you have so-and-so on your show when you guys don't necessarily agree with them? And it's like, hey, dude, you're not going to agree with everybody on every single thing. And
2: with- Also, it's like, where do we learn, right? Yeah. Like, I'm from a pretty – I mean, my my personal background's like, really liberal, right? Like, I was born in San Francisco Bay Area – You know it's like i always joke it's like i'm a like screenwriter publishing went to an ivy league school like if i was more on brand i'd be a fucking tesla right (laughs) so many of my most fruitful relationships are i've always had friends all the way across that gamut and so much of what i've learned intellectually emotionally psychologically politically culturally is from having this like big divergent group of people and that's what you want you want people who are really strong and really smart um that you can kind of bang up against at times right and learn new things from and have to enter new situations with humility cuz you're not the expert you're not just you're not just engaging in one little area where you're the alpha right where you're on top of it i think it's really important to constantly have friends who are you know great like you know if i've i've a, a couple of friends who are navy seals and it's like they're really happy for my success but, like, they don't give a shit. It's not like they want to be friends with a novelist for that. Like, that's never going to play a role in our friendship that way, right. right? It's it's about a genuine friendship. And, of course, we're, like, proud of each other and admire each other. But you want relationships in a lot of different areas, especially in a world that's this polarized, um, to kind of be able to hold steady and also make sure that you're you're red teaming your what you think your beliefs are. Because we don't even know what we think half the time right we have a bunch of stuff fed to us and you better be able to hold discourse with and debate with people who are really smart and articulate advocates of positions that you don't agree with even if it's just to fire test and steel man your own views and sometimes you learn stuff and you integrate it and sometimes they learn stuff and they integrate it and that's the only place that progress goes so this increased like you know. AI powered algorithmic unliking of anybody who doesn't agree with us hypersonic speeding us into silos bullshit like I just don't I, I don't get
0: yeah me neither because uh, we see it every single day we talk about it uh, a lot on the show and and I'm always surprised by it when they're like why did you you know again have so and so on or whatever and it was just like dude you've, you've got to listen and uh, be willing to listen to the the other side no matter what you agree on in this life um, with everything that you've written, by the way, because I've, I've I've written a lot in my life. Have you ever thought that you got it perfect on one of these where you look back and you were like, that was perfect. I have no notes. I would not go back and rewrite it.
2: Man, perfect's hard. You know, it's like I'm always wary of anything in the arts where somebody feels like they've mastered the field.
0: You know, Not mastered say- the field, just the, that one particular project.
2: i'd say that where i hit a point where i feel like it's legitimate pride that that i'm not going to lead with like false humility over it is where i feel like i've brought something forward to the best of my abilities during that period of time right and certain books feel that way you know like i'm i'm pretty proud of the last orphan the one that's coming out in february um i feel like i got a lot right in that at least for how good I was during the period that I was writing and editing that, right? Yeah. I could maybe go back now having written a book or two after and want to fiddle. But that's like later books Greg, not writing the last orphan Greg. So I try and kind of gauge it that way. But it's weird because you know you always slip through. Look, you guys know this. You guys are hooked into like a dozen different entrepreneurial and creative ventures. And it's like you can feel like you're crushing something and then all of a sudden there's a new idea or you're around some other version of genius and you're like wait a minute i feel like i'm a neophyte and got to raise my game again right so i think it's a constant process of trying to like iris open to new ideas and possibilities and then try to catch up to them and you know the process of doing that is also a process of failure sometimes Mm. and so every time i hope i'm getting it right as best as i can and then I hope I'm reaching for something bigger the next time where I feel like there's no fucking way I'm going to pull it off through the first kind of whole half of it and try and grow into it and then turn it around. So
1: Yeah, I'll say the last two books especially have been exceptional. I mean, the I, I like all of them. I've always enjoyed the character. I like the, the development of the character. Um, but the last two especially have... You remember the last season of, of Game of Thrones, to bring it up again, how it felt very rushed, right? Like you knew there were a lot of things, there were a lot of T's to be crossed, a lot of I's to be dotted. Like how are they possibly going to do this in one more season, which is probably not a great idea to say, hey, we're going to wrap it up this year. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Um, and obviously being the, the sole author, the novel gives you the power to do it however you want. But every single book recently has made significant progress on – the characters involved the main characters especially uh uh, you learn a little bit more about them and they're making progress without seeming like you're trying to um and and you know one thing led to another and now here we are right it's because i find that it happens in series a lot where you know maybe it's just the author getting bored with the characters and they just want to wrap it up and move on to something else i don't know what it is but this has not been like that it's been a very i wouldn't even say gradual either because you there's 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 new shit in every book with these characters, but it all kind of you know compounds over time. So I I, I think you're doing a great job with these late, with all of them, but especially these last two. They're getting really good.
0: And do you have an end to this already in your mind? And do you know what number that is?
2: I don't have an end. I mean, look. As long as I can figure out feeling really challenged and stretching creatively, like what I don't want to do is get up and be like, okay, you know, it's, it's that time again. I got to get out another orphan X book. Like what's the formula? Because I'm really trying to move him through different iterations as I'm moving myself through different iterations of myself. And so, so far I'm, there's a lot for me to catch up to and to go into with a lot of genuine interest and curiosity and if i'm writing from that place then i feel like it's really compelling for people when they read it i will say that i'm driving towards a kind of bookend around book 10 like book 10 is going to be something that feels like seminal and closes off this first stage and then some things will be different after that um and i have that in my head right now thinking forward of how i want to chart that stuff through um but i'm not going to put down that character anytime soon Okay. But things are going to be different.
0: Yeah, because I I always wonder, uh, especially like let's let's say uh, the television world for example uh, with Lost, when you don't know how many seasons it's going. As a writer, you're kind of just you're you're going going going. You're like, wait a minute, is there an end to this? And have we thought about an end? Should we have? Yeah. Should this have ended two series ago? Everything else? You uh, can tell,
1: too, because yeah. the, the particularly the the middle part of the seasons will become very episodic. Uh-huh. Like, there's this dis- disjointedness between the episodes. You're like, oh, this is very entertaining, but it didn't move the story along at all. We're just kind of fucking treading water here. Right.
0: right. And I, I got to have dinner with a couple of the writers uh, maybe seven or eight months ago, and I asked them point blank, and they were like, you know, they said, yeah. hey, as this You're was... Yeah, do you know it? Do you know this this, this story? Yeah, Yeah. I go, hey, do you guys know where you're going with this? And they were like, no, we no fucking idea. Uh, And then it got to a point in the writer's room where they were going up to, I think it was Lindelof or whoever, and they were like, dude, we've got to set an end to this. Otherwise, we've got fucking animals coming out of shit, everything, people are disappearing and all this stuff. Like, we've got to move toward an end. And then they finally went into the network and say, two more seasons, and then we're done. It still didn't feel satisfying to me, uh, where as a writer, I think you want a satisfying ending for your audience. Do you personally read message boards or anything regarding Orphan X and what their expectations are for the end of that character and that series?
2: Not a ton. I mean, look, one of the rules on reviews is, you know, you can read them or comments and, you know, bask in all the positive ones. But if you're going to do that, you got to believe all the negative ones, too. And that can just get a little exhausting. I mean, I've, I've, I have a pretty fortunate so far interface with my readers in that kind of community. Like I, I'm on book tour. I go to a lot of the same places. I'm going out on the road. I'm doing you know, California, I'm doing a bunch, I'm doing Texas, Austin, Houston, Dallas, I'm gonna be in Phoenix, um, I'm going to Tucson, I'm gonna be in Florida. I mean, so I have a good sort of cadence of how I interface with that world in a way that feels like it's real, right? And and some of the comments and some of the input that I look at, but I'm not poring over that because I need to also maintain something that's separate, you know, while while having an interface with the community around OrphanX, Um But it's like I'm writing, um, for them, but not to them, you know.
0: But the fans will tell you to your face at some of these signings and stuff, and that that's unavoidable.
1: I love the it's the good idea fairy. Like you know what you should, you know what Evan, oh god, you what
0: Evan would
2: do. Like oh yeah, (laughs) that's endless. it's it's always too like hey I you know, listen, man, I got a great idea for a book. I just don't have time to write it. And it's like, thank you, 60-year-old orthodontist at a wedding. Like, I've yeah. been working my whole life for this. But what I, <laughs> all that I need in my discipline and, you know, evolution of an aesthetic that works for me, both commercially and creatively, is an idea from you. That's the mm-hmm. one thing I'm waiting for, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, um, you're
1: you're building quite the catalog now. And I wonder, uh, since we're talking about good idea fairies, somebody in the chat had a good idea. Okay. Um You talked about James Patterson and how he's uh, been kind of a mentor to a lot of other people in the community and brought other writers on. I don't know. I've never looked into this, but I'm sure there have been spinoffs from his work that have been written by other people, if not just ideas that people come up with in the room. Have you ever given any thought? Because you're a, a leader in the industry now. Have you given any thought to finding... Uh, another author or maybe even a female author to write a Joey series or something like that, something that spends off of your original IP?
0: Ah, that's, that's, mm-hmm. a, yeah, that's a great
2: question. I've been pretty protective on the book front, right? I mean, co- I do comics too. Mm-hmm. I just had an original um, graphic novel anthology come out called New Think that's sort of like Black Mirror meets the Twilight Zone about like tech addiction and the culture wars. Obviously, that's going to be a hugely collaborative enterprise right because a comic book artist is is half the equation you know likewise with film tv like is as as you guys know all too well with the books i've I've still been like every word that's written in the orphan x world in my novels every single thing is me still and i haven't figured out how much that's a control i want to loosen and play with or not but for now i'm pretty protective over specifically that tone right because i want to make sure like every dialogue exchange every scene every action scene is like what makes it different that it's evan smoke and not jason Bourne, right what makes this evan smoke and not jack reacher right the way he talks the way he interacts and what's weird with joey is that you know she she's a delight for me to write i mean she's she's seemingly obviously pretty further off for me from a demographic perspective than evan but, you know, I just, I hear her voice really, really clearly. So that's not something I'm, I'm willing to seed yet, but it's not like it's a hard line. It's just where I am right now and how I'm moving forward with it. I feel like it's got to come out of my
0: gut.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, you could just write it yourself. I know you've got plenty of free time.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tons of free time. Uh, since I asked you what, what you thought you got right, has there ever been one that you thought you got wrong? I'm not asking for the name of it, by the way.
2: Yeah. I mean, certainly some stuff that's, um, you know, like screenplay or TV stuff that didn't get made that in hindsight, there's some that I feel like I nailed it and we just didn't get the stars aligned on it. But there's some stuff where I'm like, I can see I didn't, I didn't make it undeniable and you have to make something undeniable. I mean, I think there's some aspects of the books that, that, you know, I would tweak a little bit more here or there, or I would have dived deeper with certain kinds of subject matter experts, right? Like I wasn't quite as aware of it when I was writing something, and I would have gone in a deeper dive with with some other people to make sure that I was really grounding it right. Um, but look, part of it is is on the one hand, you know, my first book I started when I was nineteen. So on the one hand, it's like it's a pretty big blessing to be published from a really young age. You know, by the other token, you know, a lot of what I've thought, like, is out there permanently in print, and I kind of also have a belief that nobody should ever be held accountable for what they think when they're like twenty-one years old. Agreed. Um, but of course, you know, iPhones and uh, social media has made that kind of the bane of everyone's existence. But I've, I've, I've. So I'm also give myself some slack for the fact that it's like, look, I was writing that book I was nineteen twenty. I was writing that book I was twenty-one twenty-two. You know, it's. You gotta learn, you gotta make mistakes. And a lot of it for me was sort of in in some sense in the public eye. You know, so if there's things I would do differently, if there's things for me that are cringy in a book or language that I would want more elevated or characters I want more sophisticated, also that's life. You know, I just happen to have one that was weirdly public in a certain way with some of my thinking.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because uh, you go back to things you wrote at an earlier age and your mind, you don't have the same life experiences yet. So yeah, you go back and you're like, oh, man, I thought I knew this and that was dumb. Like, that's completely not how uh, the world is. And uh, that was a stupid thing for me to say. But, yeah, you're, you know, you you were 19. I mean, that's fucking insane. Yeah, but
1: writing this, especially if you're writing serial stuff, you could just blame it on the character. Like, oh, that's not me. I didn't, (laughs) that was Evan that thought that shit.
0: Well,
2: it's so funny too. It's like, you know, writing like marital scenes before you're married. It's like, you know, what the
0: hell did you know? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, our kids. Uh, yeah, I, I watch "Married
1: to... with Children." That's pretty much how most marriages are. I yeah, think. you're good. You're good. I think that's probably no the most watch accurate representation yeah. in that's,
0: television. That's history. your red book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there anything else out there that you've watched and you're like, ah, oh, shit? I wish I would have came up with that. Like, what's what's your go-to? What's your favorite?
2: Mm. Well, like one of my favorite. Let me start with books. I love. There's a writer, an author called Megan Abbott, who's just extraordinary. She writes these books about sort of um, like young female sexuality gone off the rails, like centered around like a ballet school or cheerleading and like somebody dies. It's very, it's sort of like noirish, and then it has a slight like tint from Nabokov. She's a beautiful, beautiful writer psychologically. She's one of my drop everything and read writers. Um, there's a really cool book I read, um, by a Nigerian writer, uh, Brathwaite, and it is it's called My Sister the Serial Killer. That's this really cold, uh, creepy, buttoned-down, sparsely written book. It reminds me a bit of like James M. Cain, Postman Always Rings Twice. Like it's just this weird, um, w- weird, interesting book that has its own aesthetic. It's it's really really readable too. I really dug those two a lot. I'm trying to think what else I've loved. I've just gotten into. I I mean, The Boys. I love. I'm a big Garth Ennis fan from Mm -hmm. the world of comics. Uh You know, I usually wait two, three seasons to make sure something's really, really good because it's such a commitment. Um, Same with White Lotus. Like, I tried watching it twice. I couldn't find a point of entry for the first season. I tried watching the pilot twice, and the third time I went in, I was like all in. But it took a little bit of enough people saying you got you better pay attention. And sometimes the best stuff is that way. I mean, my favorite comic arc ever is Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run, right? And I tried to read that thing, I mean, over, I mean, a half dozen times over 20 years, I didn't get it. And then the next time I read it, it was like I was in and it just felt incandescently brilliant. So, you know, there's some of that. And then the other thing I've been doing is I've been going back some. To books that meant a lot for me when I was younger. Like, I just went back and reread The Great Gatsby for the first time in a lot of years. I used to read it almost every year. And it was amazing to me how different my experience of the book was like 180 degrees. And then I went back and reread Crime and Punishment, right? I hadn't read Dostoevsky uh, since hi- literally since high school. And there's this funny thing where you're like, well, why do we read sometimes some of the most important shit when we're too young to have a full. Grasp of it, you know, so I'm trying to also make time for that and to go back and to revisit stuff. What was really cool with Crime and Punishment is, you know, with all the guilt and the cycling and the kind of compulsion, I was thinking, God, this is so reminiscent of Edgar Allan Poe. And I went back and looked in Dostoevsky's notes, and it turns out he was a big fan of Edgar Allan Poe. And he almost certainly read The Telltale Heart, right? And if you yeah. think about The Telltale Heart, as a template in certain ways or as as an echo, let's say, of crime and punishment. It's really cool. So it's also very interesting for me to see the ways that like so-called literary fiction interweaves with so-called commercial fiction. Like Camus the Stranger was was based on James M. Keynes or inspired by James M. Keynes, The Postman Always Rings Twice. Right? Like there's all this overlap. And so it's really cool for me to go back, or like, you know, I went back and was looking at F. Scott Fitzgerald's This Side of Paradise and he's obviously like a, just a spectacularly literary genius but it was interesting <laughs> reading that and going oh how weird he had some first novel problems in this you know it's not perfect like the great gatsby you know and it's not like tender is the night or even last tycoon like there's parts of it where you're like it's trying to be too many things and then to start to think of f scott fitzgerald in those terms as opposed to just like a fixed star in the firmament mm. right that he's writing a first book and then i'm reading that like as a human who's had books since that, so I've been I've been dipping I've been dipping back a little bit in those ways as well.
1: I like the I like the uh, in Hollywood right now. It's very uh, in to just write some different variant of IP right that already exists. Yeah, uh, you don't see a whole lot of novels necessarily getting turned into books or get into turned into films and TV series anymore. But one of the things I like is when it's an adaptation like you were you mentioned earlier you wouldn't necessarily know it's the same thing like uh uh, a time to kill and to kill a mockingbird that's the same story right right? yeah but it's vastly different and uh i think that's probably the better way to do it because of theater of the mind right like it's, it's the reason people always say uh oh the book was better what do you mean by that like if i if i'm writing a novel and i say things like uh A man, you know, uh, our character walks over and sits in a chair. You have a picture in your mind of what that chair looks like. And when I put it on screen and it doesn't look the same, now you've fucked with my image of the book. You're you're fucking with my memories at this point. I think it's problematic for people. But all you have to do is change a little bit. Like, oh, this is based on that, but it's a totally new thing, right?
2: It's interesting, too, because I think what you're getting at is there's a really intimate relationship between the novelist and the reader or the listener to an audiobook because... You know, if I sell a million copies of The Last Orphan, there's a million different movies playing in everyone's brain. Yeah. It's like, it's almost a collaboration. Right. And that's also part of what we key to with good writing. Right. Because it's why you don't overwrite. It's like you were saying with Joey and Evan, everything's between the lines. Because if I leave it between the lines, you'll construct that internally from your experience and your vulnerability and your sensitivity and your, right. It's, and so you want to leave room for readers and listeners to build their own version of the story and it's pretty intimate and then if you go in all of a sudden and you know cast the wrong person or have the wrong template all of a sudden it feels like it's this disruption in something that's been a pretty intimate collaboration
0: yeah uh that's it's a different way to look at it Mm. because uh it, it is hard getting things pushed through these days and uh especially too uh in publishing i wanted to get your thoughts on this We're losing publishers very, very quickly here. Uh, I know the DOJ blocked uh, the deal between Simon & Schuster, and I think it was Penguin, uh, recently. But we're down to about five publishers. A guy like you doesn't have to worry about this because of how established you are and how many books you're selling. Does it worry you, though, for the future of authors? Or is this going to give more freedom to authors to uh, go out and self-publish and build a following that way?
2: You know, it's a really good question. And we're seeing right now a little bit like with some of the streamers are making little cool movies again, right? They just got wiped out for a while that we didn't see when everything had to be like a four quadrant, you know, toy movie. Um, And so I think there's always gonna be no opportunities. It's easy to forget that the unknown always contains equal part opportunity to threat, right? Because a lot of us react with threat with the unknown it's definitely hard having these big monopolies, right? There's it's, it's, it's the price of entries greater and greater, but I think we're going to see an even bigger disruption when it comes to AI,
0: you know, oh, yeah. that's
2: and, you know, and I think that a lot of that is going to be, you know, Oh, do you want a, a brand new William Faulkner novel, but do you want it 10% um, shorter? And do you want it skewed down to your IQ at 110 instead of what he writes at average? And, do you want it to also have a mystery format like we're getting into a world where we can have kind of bespoke not just silos and news sources but like bespoke existences like we can all tune everything in and so for me the biggest um saving aspect of that is got to be community right it's like I have felt a dearth of that when TV moved to streaming because we lost appointment viewing, right? Like what's gonna happen next week on Game of Thrones? And now it's sort of like, oh, I'm watching season one of White Lotus and everyone's like, wait till season two. I can't really have a conversation the same way when we were waiting and it was like, what's gonna happen with Heather Locklear on Melrose Place, right? It's like, that was like a college event. Everybody's in and sharing it. And so I think it's really important for me, that with Orphan X and with the series and with these book tours, it's it's the aspect of community is really important that everyone's reading and reacting to one book that we can all kind of talk about and engage with and interact with. And that's gotta be the counterpoint, or else we can all read a book like you guys could read different Orphan X's. You could be like, I want my Orphan X ten percent dialed to Tom Clancy and I want mine that's fifteen percent dialed to James Patterson and and That's going to just be more fragmentation. And it might seem like we're getting what we want again and again in the short term, but I don't think that's a long tail on kind of satisfaction and feeling like we're engaged in entertainment that's meaningful because part of engaging in entertainment that's meaningful is it has some aspect of community. It has some aspect of something that's shared that we can think about and engage with each other off.
0: Yeah, the, the AI is the scariest for me where you look at it and you're like, holy shit. We went through it uh, on a show, what was that? a week ago, Delco, uh, on our PR where uh, we brought up tweets from a celebrity. Now, the first three were shitty and didn't sound like the person. The fourth one did, and uh, if you can start to hone in and get that Right. Uh, then, you know, like you said, anybody's writing thrillers or, or your favorite novelists, you could be like, all right, great, let's revive them from the dead and then just put in different elements of what would make them more mainstream today. Uh, that, to me, scares the shit out of me.
2: Well, and it's also like, well, who are you competing? Let's say you're a, So I'm also the co president of international thriller writers. So I feel a, a lot of responsibility to that community of trying to kind of foster younger writers and thriller writers um you know around the world and from all sorts of different backgrounds trying to give them access uh and to support and celebrate that career and it's like what happens when all of a sudden every single person who's writing is competing with everyone who's ever written yep Like, i want a thriller written by norman mailer right like tough guys don't dance but you know better and tighter and more structured and i want to Like, so all of a sudden, the the point of entry is you're competing with anyone who ever was. So it's like, we got to get some things right. Like, we got to start to figure out, I think, from a kind of uh, baseline space is like, what kind of shared shared spaces and relationships do we want in our communities? Like, that's something we got to start to talk about. Or else we're just going to lose everybody off to different existences. Like, with each phone being a little portal to another version of reality. Um, And, you know, we're already seeing that, you know... In non-beneficial ways in the cultural and political conversation.
0: Yeah, because I, you know, I look at it uh, from a, a plagiarism perspective too. Like, what would, what would the law be for for something like that as well? If you were picking off other people, and uh, I liken it to songwriting. So, you know, recently we've had a, a ton of lawsuits of. This sounds like this, and I think you were listening to this song when you wrote this other song, and I want your fucking money for it. Uh, now, it's happened a few times that are it, it was millions and millions of dollars. One was uh, Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On for Blurred Lines. Um, and, you know, I listen to both of those songs back to back. I don't really find them that goddamn similar, but a jury did. And they got the money for it. Yeah,
1: and Under Pressure and, and Ice Ice Baby, that's the same song. That was identical. Yeah, So
0: that, that's <laughs> yeah. like, I don't have a but problem it's not always with that, that one. it's not always
1: that black and white.
0: Right. And, and there's another one going through with uh, another Marvin Gaye song right now. And uh, Ed Sheeran, uh, that, is, that is actually going to trial as well. That's going to be multi-million dollars. Uh, Taylor Swift actually gave the credit to somebody else who she said she was listening to during the writing of one song. I forget who it was. Or no, uh, Olivia Rodrigo did. I'm sorry. She gave it to Taylor Swift because it sounded like a Taylor Swift song, and uh, she gave her 50% of publishing. Is that something that you know, could potentially happen in the future legally?
2: Look, I don't know how we're going to keep up with it. So the first thing to think about is there's a ton of authors who are public domain
0: yes right? yes then there's
2: a ton of authors who are dead right like there's people writing vince flynn as you said there's people writing robert ludlum like there's mm. people right i mean fill in the blank right so if a publisher controls the rights to that what's that mean right yeah. you don't have to pay or you don't have to pay royalties you could spin it up and control that aspect now for orphan x i own all of that right and so if that's put into the windmill or if that's put into the big ai machine and it roars up and somebody skews it that's going to be pretty hard to figure out though. I mean, like
0: the, the Yeah. The the legalities of it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah, And, and, and it's like anyone who's been involved with a lawsuit knows it's like the, the law can get like cancerously overgrown. Right. So it's like, okay, do you have half a million dollars to go bring this to court and fight it? And it's like, it's going to be hard to keep pace with. And so, you know, again, I think so much of this is there, there's going to be, you know, a quickening arms race of legality around AI. But part of this is trying to figure out like, well, what's, what's decency? What's community? How do we want to live? Like, do people want to read a book that I wrote that I'm out on tour for every year? That's furthering a story in a specific way. I think the answer to that's probably yes. You know? And then also I think that there's a bigger, big, I hate when people say there's a conversation to be had, but you know what I'm saying? There's need to reckon with AI And what's coming in a way with society where we got to pick up our heads from screaming at each other about everything, because every process that's happening is going to be accelerated. And if we want that to be towards dehumanization of people who don't think like us and polarization, that's going to accelerate. And if we want to start to wake up and go, look, AI can do some amazing, amazing stuff, right? If it has its right place and if we have our right places and if we can figure out how to order our culture and our communities properly it, it's going to be spectacular Like there's gonna be amazing stuff that can come from it but how do we want to do that right and we can't do it if we're just trying to kind of like destroy everybody and power grab at every yeah. turn
1: now the tech should always be about amplifying humanity in whatever way regardless of what technology you're talking about it's always should be about amplifying humanity some way and you mm-hmm. know just having some chat gpt churn out 400 books a year that's not doing it. And it's it's even with the uh the legacy authors. Part of the charm, part of the interest about that is the time period in which it was written and who that person was when yeah. it was written. Like like Heming- Hemingway, very- you can't have a Hemingway experience going off to the fucking Navy and writing all your books and coming back and and being a shiftless layabout for a while and drinking cognac and shit you can't do that shit anymore. Right. You know what I mean? It's just that you can't do that anymore, but there are lessons to be learned from him and Vonnegut and people like that, that went through these times. Yep, That's the whole fucking point.
2: That's right. And it's an expression of something that's, that's deeply human and can be unpredictable in certain ways. And look, there's times when the match is also right. Like I'm thinking, I love Robert B Parker, Spencer for higher books. Uh They're like, they're seminal for me. Right. In a lot of ways, I think what he, I didn't even realize this. I'm going back rereading them and I'm thinking, Oh, of course like, I'm trying to do in the thriller what he did in the mystery format, which is to make it human, right? Like, Spencer's the first guy with, like, a long-term relationship who's a PI. He, like, cooks. He's, like, engaged in psychology. It's, like, this really interesting thing. But when hit when that series got continued, you know, they hired Ace Atkins. He's a hell of a writer. Like, that's a really good match for another voice to carry forward and get us some new Spencer for Hire books. Mm. You know, so part of it is... um is that, you know, and I don't, I don't think we want to just be reading something that's only made for us. I have a little bit of this feeling, and I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but like when I'm in bed at night sometimes and I pop on Apple TV, there's like a half a trillion dollars of entertainment that I can access. Yep. There's times where none of it feels special. I'm like, oh, it's a new Star Wars series. It's a new Marvel thing. It's a new this, like it, it almost feels kind of flattened as opposed to, I mean, think when Return of the Jedi was coming out next summer. I mean, it's like you you were losing your mind. I waited online like three hours to go to Tim Burton's Batman. Right. And so there is an aspect in which I think luxury is the death of us a little bit, because if you get everything you want all the time, it also means that you get everything you want all the time and then it becomes less special. And so that's another thing that I've been thinking a lot about of like, how do we maintain these kinds of stories and series and these central narratives in ways that we can have them be special and not just give us what we want all the time. And I haven't felt like the explosion of viewing has has done, I, I don't feel as differentiated in a hierarchy of what it is that I'm dying to see the same way that I used to of like, what movies are coming out? And I've gone to the movies and I've seen a trailer for something like 17 times before it comes out and I can't wait for it, you know, and you're there on opening night and um, you know, we, we lose those things. And of course there's new ways for things to be special. I'm not suggesting we should be Luddites and like smash all the fabric looms, right. And shut off like, like Austria decided to do right to protect the peasant class. And then England embraced it and took over the more of the world. Obviously we can't move backwards with it, but I do think it's contingent on us to keep trying to find What's the human? What's mm. the point of engagement? What are conversations that are nourishing? What are stories that we're reading that feel like they're about real stuff? Yeah, yeah. Try and really lean into those when we find them and make sure that we remember that they're they're kind of sacred in a way.
1: Yeah. Creative destruction is always a wave that you can either be drowned by or you can ride it to the next location, right? Yeah. You can you get to choose which one of those two things you're gonna do. Um, England obviously chose the right path. They're also uh, Jordan would be very happy that you mentioned hierarchies in this interview. So if he happens <laughs> to see it, uh, I'm sure he'll be thrilled with that.
2: I just can sneak in one rescuing your father from the underworld. Yeah. Like we're gold. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> He's, uh, no, it, for I, for I was going to ask you, uh, yeah. yeah, I was going to ask you if he pays you for the times you mention him in the books, but. <laughs> Cause, uh, uh, one of the characters that lives in his apartment complex, she leaves notes on the wall for her child to read, right? Uh Like just little quips. And usually it's a Jordan Peterson saying.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. That that was still when he was still lowercase Jordan Peterson. Uh, That's true, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's uppercase now. (laughs) It's uppercase now. (laughs) Uh, I have a weird prediction before we get out of here. I think somebody's going to come up with an AI Banksy version of an author uh, that's not a real person that will just – Keep shooting out like you know, kind of crazy, weird shit that has mastered the system first. We're gonna think this person's brilliant. Never know who it is. That'd that's be just amazing. that's just a guess. Uh, now's the point of the show we get to the drinking bro of the week, uh, which is someone who has inspired you or helped you become the person you are today. Who would you like to give the drinking bro of the week to? For me. Yep.
2: Wow, that's cool. I just got back from doing a really like crazy weird seminar on exodus of all things and one of the guys who's on that is a greek orthodox carver named jonathan pageau who is so interesting he's got a podcast and he talks about symbol he just like thinks in symbolism he's unbelievably um just sharp of figuring out like how symbols fit together and how they work and like I, robert I had, langdon
1: I had- from uh, the da vinci code that kind of mind
2: yeah, yeah. yeah, he's just got like a capacious brain mm. for it. So I've had a lot of fun thinking of him, um, th- talking with him and engaging with him about different kinds of symbolism. He's made me think about stuff in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, and so I'd say that's who it is. Awesome.
1: What's the name of the podcast? Do you know?
2: I don't know, but you can look him up. Jonathan Pajot. Um,
0: he's easy to find. All right, perfect. Mm. Uh, and then tell everybody when the next book is coming out, where to get it
2: book is coming out on valentine's day here we go um it's called the last orphan it's the eighth orphan x book um if you haven't read them you can jump on with this one i always make sure that i i kind of reset um and that's it and i'm out on book tour so if anyone wants to come say hi please please come up and find me and i'm happy to sign a book to you
1: perfect make, make sure you get this book for your wife or girlfriend for uh for valentine's day absolutely she'll, she'll definitely appreciate that
0: yeah and uh it helps all these pre-orders help for the first week of the new york times bestseller list so if you haven't you pre-order it now don't wait until the week after because it starts over the week after that and you gotta add up the numbers again so pre-order the book now uh greg fascinating conversation man please come back we really enjoyed it hey thanks for having me i really appreciate it this was fun absolutely Uh, check him out pre-order the book now Uh, for D'Anthony D'Anthony Holloway I'm Ross Patterson this is the Drinking Bros Podcast good night everyone